for Balpin and 200 Brass. I'm Carson Stooley. This is Fangraph Saturday. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Saturday, making his weekly Monday appearance, his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does each week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors in this edition of the program to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Not of the most note, uh, but of the most immediate note chronologically, Chris Young has signed with the Boston Red Sox. That uh, that leads me to ask Dave Cameron a question, a question not unlike, will you provide for me and for the listener a brief recent history of outfield depth in the Boston Red Sox system. He supplies that sort of thing. It's a it's a list that it's a list that includes Yuan Cespedes, Shane Victorino, Hanley Ramirez, perhaps, and then uh, players who are still with the team. Uh, of course, Hanley Ramirez is still with the team. Players with them, etc. You uh, understand what I'm saying. Also, J A J Hap J A Hap was his or his initials, but you can call him J Hap. He had one of the best. Two month stretches of last season and over the last two months of the season. He also did that while under the tutelage of Pirates pitching coach Ray Searidge. Is he, will he be able to repeat that sort of performance while, uh, after he returns to the Toronto Blue Jays, with which team he has recently signed? Another player who has recently signed, another pitcher who has recently signed is Jordan Zimmerman. He signed a, f- a five year contract worth $110 million with the Detroit Tigers. We, I asked Cameron about that pitcher, that baseball player as well. Uh, this is not all, though. Of course, we cover a number of topics here. Dave Cameron, for example, in what follows, Dave Cameron even provides uh, some illumination with regard to uh, some metaphysical concerns. There's a big, giant ball of mystery in there and that we don't really know. All that exciting material to follow. What's following immediately, post-haste, Right here is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft, the Draft app. Are you familiar with FanDuel or DraftKings? DraftKings, probably it's called. Those are daily fantasy sports games. Draft is also a daily fantasy sports game. Notable, however, notable for being the first such uh, game designed specifically for mobile devices. Here's what you do after loading the app. Uh, You find uh, an opponent. This could be a friend. Or an internet stranger who's already part of the draft universe. You conduct a snake draft. You each select five players. Those players accrue fantasy points. Whichever you or your opponent has uh, accrued the most fantasy points, you are the winner. That is the winner. In the event that you are uh, particularly confident about your abilities in doing this, or just loaded with money, you can wager American currency on the outcome of the game. And I know you may uh, you may have questions about it. You may say. May say Carson Sestouli, host of Fangraphs Audio, baseball season's over, and I would reply, well, you should know that Draft also offers games for professional and collegiate football and professional hockey and basketball. So you have all manner of games from which to choose during the cold, sad, dark winter months. I know that your interest has peaked. And so here's what you can do if you are the owner of a device that runs the iOS operating system. Direct your attention to the App Store. Otherwise, if you have an Android device, go to Google Play or something like Google Play and download the app there. And that's all I will say about it because contractually we do about a minute of uh, sponsorship. Anyway, that's the end of that. And I will now uh, direct your attention to conversation with Dave Cameron. So what is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who is the featured managing editor of Fangraphs? Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now.
yes, I was flying. I was flying, and I saw um, a father with two kids, and both of the kids had a toy gun. Mm, that seems like uh, a good way to get arrested. I guess I don't know. I, uh, I mean, they were clearly toy guns. They were, you know, like a yellow color. But I just thought maybe it's um, not a great choice. Yeah, for a father to make, but uh, I'm not a father, so. <coughs> well, I think that's the best choice you could make. <laughs> Thank you. Can't the world thanks you for that. Uh, as we talk here, it appears though the Red Sox have just signed Chris Young, the outfielder. Yes, Chris Young, the shorter. Chris Young, the shorter. Yeah. To uh, what sort of deal? What are we talking uh, about? We don't. We don't know. Multi-year, so that means two years. I mean, like yeah. platoon outfielders in their 30s don't get three or four-year deals. So a two-year deal. Uh, we don't know the terms. The crowd guessed 212. Uh, I would be shocked if it isn't something close to that. Maybe it's 210. Maybe it's 214. It's going to be something like that. Okay. All right. And uh, now, wait. Yeah, this brings up a question I want to ask, which is: Could you provide a brief uh, history? a brief and recent history of Red Sox outfield depth. Because it feels as though at some point in the not very distant past um, that uh, an excess of outfield depth was a problem for them. Well, they thought they had too many outfielders back when Hanley Ramirez was thought to be an outfielder and Alan Craig was thought to be alive. Okay. But neither of those things are true. Okay, okay. Uh, Alan, Alan, Alan Craig's baseball, baseball career. Well, for for all intents and purposes, <laughs> like, right, okay. he, he might actually be dead. Right. Uh, yeah, Alan, Alan Craig is uh, no longer in the picture, uh, and uh, Hanley Ramirez is no longer considered an outfielder. So. And, they, and they had acquired Ioannis Cespedes um, what, right. at the end of it, the, the 20... Yeah, they, they flipped Cespedes for Rick Porcello, which now seems like a mistake, mm-hmm. uh, or at least you know it didn't work out. Uh, and you know they had Daniel Nava, who they don't have anymore. So they had, you know some guys who used to be around are no longer around. Uh, so heading into 2016, their outfield was essentially uh, Rizny Castillo, Jackie Bradley Jr., and Mookie Betts, all who have talent and are interesting, but also who have short track records. I mean, Betts, I think at this point, has probably quieted most or all doubters. So I think you can probably say he's going to play every day and you don't have to worry about him too much. But Bradley and Castillo are legitimate question marks that you don't really know what you're going to get from them next year. Uh, and I think having a veteran you know, part-time platoon guy to to be around uh, to give those guys days off is not a bad idea. Right. So, um, now of course, Jackie Bradley had had uh, had had visited the major leagues in previous seasons, at least two of them, um, and even the beginning of the 2015 season without much in the way of success. In fact, um, um, the opposite of success, really. Yeah. He was uh, terrible. Yeah, he's terrible. Uh, but then uh, perhaps some combination, it would appear, of uh, Mechanical changes, and then also, uh, you know, perhaps just uh, repetition uh, allowed him to hit uh, hit well and hit with some power towards the end of, the, of this past season. Yeah, the power was the main thing. I was like, in the minor leagues, he was kind of a, uh, you know, lower strikeout contact hitter who had the gap power, you know, who didn't necessarily project as a big home run guy, but he got to the major leagues and struck out a ton. And when you don't have a lot of power and you strike out a lot, that's like a really bad combination. Uh, and since it seemed like he couldn't necessarily fix the strikeout issue, uh, he just instead hit for power, which is a good way to compensate for not making contact. So uh, it seems like he's maybe developing into a different kind of hitter than people thought he might be. But if he can hit for power and draw some walks and play really good defense, you know that's a nice player. Now the uh, yeah, and of course the defense was um, was a quality for him that was uh, conspiring to make him a, a replacement level, even when his offense was was nothing like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think with a guy like Bradley, you don't necessarily need him to hit that well in order to be a valuable piece, right? Like it's a kind of like the Luan Lagares back a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, was a, what, a four or five win player based on you know amazing center field defense and good enough hitting. And I think that's kind of what you're looking at from Bradley is. Uh, you're hoping for something close to league average offense and, you know, stellar defense in center field. And, you know, if you have that, the Kansas City Royals just basically wrote a whole bunch of players like that to the World Series. Right. And uh, I want to get to this question of Red Sox outfield depth momentarily. But uh, you made you made this point about Jackie Bradley is that he did not have particularly high strikeout rates in the minor leagues, uh, in right. particular the low minors, but he, he he had decent rates in the high minors as well. And then, yeah, that number um, in his first couple of trips to the major leagues really uh, skyrocketed. Now, yeah. obviously, uh, any even just sort of like a generic uh, translator, right, um, if, if you're uh, is going to pr- project a higher strikeout rate for a player in the majors than AAA, this is not right. shocking. Right. He exhibited one much larger than you would have expected. And I'm curious, do we know if that reveals anything about a player? I mean, I don't I don't think we know it tremendously. Like, we don't have that much sense of, you know, what types of players are going to experience, you know, bigger uh, regression or decline uh, from the, from the De- minors. Deteriorate, the deterioration. Yeah, deterioration. I think one of the things we do know is that walk rate – doesn't translate hardly at all. Uh, like guys who walk in the minors don't necessarily walk in the major leagues. Walking in the big leagues uh, often has to do with intimidating the pitcher. And so a lot of these guys who are smaller stature, like Bradley, uh, get challenged when they get to the big leagues. And perhaps his approach that led to uh, some walks and not that many strikeouts in the minor leagues didn't work once he started facing 96 in the zone. Um, but that's, you know, just kind of speculative. Like, I, I don't think we can say for sure why Bradley struck out 14% of the time in AAA this year and then 27% of the time in the big leagues. Uh, but I think there is something to be said that, like, now we have 780 some odd plate appearances from Bradley, uh, in the major leagues and his career contact rate is 72, 73%. Uh, this is a guy who's going to strike out some. Like, you know, the contact rate stabilizes pretty quickly and gives us a pretty good idea of, uh, of a hitter's kind of core skill. And Bradley just doesn't make enough contact to avoid striking out an above average rate. You know, the league strikeout rate's now 20%, uh, with a league average contact rate around 80%. So if you're striking out, or if you're making contact around 72% of the time, you're going to have a strikeout rate north of, you know, probably 25, 26, 27%. And at those rates, you have to hit for power in order to be any good. Right, right, right. And so, um, and so perhaps what you're suggesting is that if we saw that, that increase in strikeout rate, it may be, uh, pitchers not entirely worried about the power, the power on contact and therefore attacking right. him uh, more in the zone. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't think we can say for a fact because we don't necessarily have minor league in-zone data at a high quality that we can look at and be like, oh, look at all these pitches he wasn't getting in the zone. Uh, but I think it, you know, at least follows logically that uh, pitchers in the minors have worse command and perhaps guys like Bradley can take advantage of that and get ahead in counts and maybe their swing and miss uh, tendencies can be hidden in the minor leagues because if you swing and miss at a 2-0 count or a 3-1 count, you didn't strike out, you just get another chance. Where in the majors, if it's you know 1-2 or 2-2 and you swing and miss, well, now you're out. Right. Yeah, uh, wait, you mentioned, uh, that, that data, we, we don't have that data, it's not publicly available. Do you know, do we know where the, the, the organizations themselves are in terms of compiling that sort of data in the minor leagues? 
Yeah, so it's actually like a little bit scattered. So like there, uh, some teams have paid, uh, Sport Vision or TrackMan, who are kind of like the two primary data providers, uh, in terms of tracking. Uh, Sport Vision does PitchFX, uh, and all the FX products. And, uh, TrackMan does the radar-based system that's gonna power or powers the, you know, StatCast, um, and is kind of what, uh, teams are moving towards at the major league level. Um, so some teams have bought and installed their own TrackMan or Sport Vision systems or have paid those companies to do so in their minor league parks. And as part of the deal, uh, they have these like strange agreements where if you install a system in your ballpark, you obviously own all that data, but you can also like trade that data with another organization uh, to get some of their data. So like some teams will have scattered, you know, radar data or, or pitch effects data for some minor league parks down in the low minors. Uh, but not all of the parks, and not all the parks have it, so some teams don't have anything. Uh, it's kind of hit or miss uh, what teams have, and and not you know just because a, a camera or a radar system is in a park doesn't mean every team has access to that data. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Or in say you just you were an organization that decided not to trade the data. If you were hoping to get some quality information about a visiting player, you would you would be constantly hoping for the other team to 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 play him. Right. Out. And, you know, realistically, you're only going to get like three or six games of data, probably, right. or, you know, maybe 10 if the guy comes through a bunch of times. But especially if it's a good prospect and he only spends half a season at the league and then he gets promoted, like your chance of getting a significant, uh, you know, sample of data on him is, pr- is pretty slight, especially with a pitcher. Uh, you, you know, he, he might not even pitch on his time through the ballpark. So uh, I do think eventually... Um, you know, maybe Major League Baseball, once StatCast starts working, will uh, do some economy of scale things and might implement this at the minor league level too. Or I can see down the line there's a little bit more uh, coverage uh, across the board, especially now that Sport Vision is kind of, um, you know, seeing their Major League footprint reduced a little bit with with StatCast taking over. They might focus more on the minor leagues. Uh, but right now it's it's pretty hit or miss on uh, quality tracking data. Okay. Uh, okay. Now we return to the, the conversation regarding the Red Sox outfield. You, the third member uh, of that um, outfield, presumably uh, in 2016, will be Rosny Castillo, who had recorded nearly 300 plate appearances of uh, worth of um, playing time this year. And uh, oh, it's not not terrible, uh, but oh, actually not uh, perhaps not different from. Uh, certain versions of Jackie Bradley that we've seen in that um, much of his value was a product of defensive ability as opposed to uh, offensive. Yeah, he put up a 72 WRC plus last year. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your definition of terrible is, but that's I, pretty. I, cool. I mine is I have a more liberal. I'm a more I'm more understanding of weaknesses than you are, Dave Cameron. Okay, well yeah. let, let's be fair. Rusny Castillo hit like crap last okay. year. All right, all right. <laughs> he, uh, he's an athletic guy with uh, you know maybe enough. Uh, other tools that, like Bradley, he might not have to be a good hitter in order to be a useful major league player. But I think, you know, uh, it was not a great sign that he hit for basically no power. Uh, and I think when he signed last year, uh, or, you know, the year before, Kylie McDaniel, uh, you know, kind of questioned whether the power was going to be there. It saw him as kind of like a slap hitting Shane Victorino type, which was kind of the, the comparison that the, even the Red Sox kind of attached to him as a guy who they thought could have a lot of value. Uh, across the board wasn't necessarily going to be a big time power hitter. Um, you know, I think if we're going to read something into the Jackie Bradley or into the Chris Young signing, uh, my sense would be that it could be that the Red Sox are either lining something up or maybe feel pretty good about the fact that they can trade Rusny Castillo. Uh, there's a lot of rumors about 
the team going to be, you know, the high bidder for David Price and, and potentially outbid everybody else by a good amount to try and get him to come to Boston. If they're going to spend 30 or $35 million a year on David Price, they might be inclined to trade a, you know, 10 or $11 million a year outfielder who they see as a, a maybe a part-time player, not an impact guy in order to clear up some space. And now that you have Chris Young, you could potentially go sign some kind of like left-handed platoon guy to do a job share and, and maybe get similar production that you'd get from Castillo uh, from two players who cost a lot less. Right. And, uh, okay, so we know what we know about Chris Young. Chris Young had, uh, with the Yankees this season, had a, a decent year. Yeah, he was um, actually one of the better kind of reserve fourth outfielder types in baseball. Right. And I, I without looking uh, – Am I correct in presuming that a lot of those plate appearances uh, came against left-handed pitchers? So he played against basically every left-hander. So anytime the Yankees faced a lefty, he was on the he was on the field. Uh, but he also played probably against more right-handers than they would have liked because Jacoby Ellsbury got hurt, Brett Gardner got hurt, Carlos Beltran was Carlos Beltran at least for the first half of the year and wasn't hitting very well. Um, you know, they had a decent amount of uh, outfield playing time open up, and so, you, you know, you don't get 350 plate appearances in a year against lefties. There just aren't enough lefties out there. Right. Uh, but I believe Young kind of had, like, a pretty even split between right and left-handed pitching uh, over his total of bats, which is not necessarily what you want from Young. I think you want him facing more lefties than righties. But, you know, he didn't embarrass himself in, when he was pushed into uh, action against right-handers, and he's the kind of guy where he does have big platoon splits, but it doesn't mean that he's absolutely useless and you never want him playing against right-handers. Going back to some of his his early uh, seasons, he he was a really interesting player. Uh, I mean, this is um, I guess what 2010 2011. He put up a couple of interesting seasons, um, but I guess uh, I don't know were, were those were those flukes uh, or um, was it maybe just the, his sort of skill set when it when it clicks? Uh, you know, the combination of power and speed uh, it's it's likely to do to help him, but um, it relies on maybe um. It relies on that power um, sort of materializing, which it's not likely to do even over the course of a full season. Yeah, I mean, I think those were his age 26, 27 seasons, and like the big notable difference is those are the years he hit for power, or he uh, he struck out close to the league average rate while hitting for power. So he's always hit for you know a decent amount of power. That's always been kind of his trademark, as he was a power hitting center fielder. But you know, most of his early career, he struck out a lot, uh, which you know you look back at like 24, 25 percent strikeout rates now, and you're like, oh, that's not a big deal. But you know, 10 years ago, those were really high. And uh, so his value was dragged down by not making a lot of contact. Kind of in those peak years, he started making contact uh, a bit more often, and, and the power played up because of that. Uh, and so I think that was kind of like the best version of this type of player. Uh, you know, a, a really good defense, uh, you know, above average power for a center fielder, good enough walk and, and strikeout rates in order to make everything else work, um, and some speed. He stole bases and was a good base runner. So uh, I don't think uh, it was necessarily a fluke. That's kind of like when the age 26, 27 is when a lot of players peak, and this is when Young's kind of skills coalesced into their best version. And then, you know, as he's gotten older, his skills have atrophied a little bit. So he's not that anymore. Uh, but it doesn't mean he wasn't ever that. He was just that for kind of a short period of time. You know, uh, quite, uh, quite a bit of conversation or, uh, on the site recently about the relationship between power and age, and uh, because, of course, uh, you know, some of it is has a lot to do with uh, uh, with Chris Davis's free agent uh, free right. agency. And I know Eno wrote about this recently. I guess perhaps was it maybe one of the early findings by Bill James that power peaks later, um, but it would seem to be to have been. Um, but we we should revise our opinion from that. I know certainly the work by was it Bill Petty and Jeff Zimmerman regarding age curves. 
Yeah. I mean, I think the, the tricky thing is like studying aging curves, uh, over the kind of recent history of baseball is fraught with problems because we don't really know one, what PEDs exactly do, but we have a pretty good idea that they help players, uh, maintain at least their physical abilities later on in their careers. I mean, there's, I don't think it's a coincidence and I don't think anyone would, would argue that we saw uh, a rise of old players playing well. Uh, during the time when it's, you know, generally agreed upon that a lot of players are using steroids. So we don't necessarily know that steroids, like, make you better, but it seems like they maybe allow you to stay at your peak level longer. Um, so when you look at, like, aging curves based on anything in the 90s and 2000s, you, there's a big giant ball of mystery in there and that we don't really know whether or how much of that was natural versus synthetic. Uh, and then if you go back to like the 70s and 80s, it was really a very different ball game, right? Like the strike zone was a lot smaller and the, uh, you know, the game was just very different then. So I think the guys made so much contact. Yeah. I mean, it was just like very different types of players and types of athletes and types of training. Like that, uh, it's the same game and it's the same rules, but it's different people playing it. And so I think one of the things the Zimmerman's written about is like, it seems like players are declining much faster now than they used to. Um, that could be, uh, partly because, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a rush to get rid of PEDs and, and, uh, amphetamines from Major League Baseball. We know that greenies were widely used in the 70s. Um, so it could be like a, you know, an actual, like, this is what players do is they peak maybe earlier than they used to, uh, and they decline faster than they used to. But we don't really know because we don't have like a really long stretch of, kind of drug-free baseball data, and I still don't think we're drug-free, but we're certainly reduced drug usage at this point. Um, so I think making assumptions about how players are going to age based on historical trends is uh, tough. I mean, we can, like, look at data, and we can say, like, look, here's some here's some guesses, and here's some comparables, And but I think, like, we should be pretty careful when it comes to aging curves uh, of making, like, de- declarative statements about, like, this does that, or this always does this. We, You know, aging curves are strange and probably changing. Okay, uh, let's let's move on. Another another recent transaction concerned uh, left-handed pitcher J. A. Happ. Yeah. Uh, who I know of the two pitchers who signed this weekend, he's definitely the one we should talk about. Well, he's a, no. Well, the other one is Jordan Zimmerman. But here's the question about J. A. Because J. A. Happ. Uh, I think he just goes by J. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah. J. Happ. J. Happ. Well, right, pretend fair. that there's not an A there. He for for a while. For a while, um, starting really at the beginning of his career, uh, with the exception of a couple of seasons in which he posted uh, better ERAs than you might have expected based on his fielding independent numbers, he has been average or slightly worse. Uh, yeah. Maybe average, roughly average for a starting pitcher, maybe yeah. not quite that good. No, right. He's been, a, yeah, roughly average, I would right. say. It, when he, after joining the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates this year from what, from Seattle with whom he had been, according to his fielding independent numbers, roughly average, mm-hmm. uh, he was considerably better than average by basically any way you would care to measure it. He was really great the last two months of the season. Yeah. Right. It was really great. It was a, what, a, a little over six innings, about 10 starts, something like yeah. that. Right. Now, the, there were always a couple of forces at work there, uh, and this is certainly a situation that was that's been amplified by uh, Rich Hill's case. He was recently signed by Oakland, right? Yeah. Um, there are certain things that pitchers do, uh, which um, you know that are expressed in in numbers, which which uh, become reliable pretty quickly. Strikeout yeah. rate tends to be pretty good. Right. Um, uh, velocity tends to be pretty good. Uh, Hap was a lot better uh, by both of those measures, or right. n- maybe not a lot better, but better. 
Yeah. Um, with uh, with Pittsburgh, and this also happens uh, at the same time to be an organization, the Pirates, uh, who employ Ray Searich, who's what probably one of he's certainly one of the pitching coaches. It seems very clearly to be able to fix a pitcher. Yeah, I mean, we don't know that it's all him, but the Pittsburgh organization, led by Searage probably, uh, have seemed to figure out uh, how to take guys' weaknesses and diminish them or improve on their strengths, uh, and and most notably uh, seem to really be good with guys who pitch down in the zone. Uh, and they, they have some uh, philosophies related to the fastball that are different than a lot of other organizations, and, and maybe they're onto something at this point. Now, the signing by Toronto of Jay, Jay Happ is notable insofar as they employed him for two yeah. years yeah. very recently, 2013, yeah. 2014. Right. And uh, they did not, there was no urgency for them to resign him after the 2014 season. Uh, or perhaps he was involved in a trade, uh, was that the Saunders trade maybe? Yeah, he was traded for Michael Saunders. Yeah. Traded for Michael Saunders. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, if Michael Saunders had, you know, if you, if you believed that uh, he had maybe suffered you know, playing under, you know, with Seattle, maybe some of his skills were deflated. Maybe it wasn't a bad trade. Anyway, the point is they're, they're, they have now re-signed him, uh, at a rate, which is three years, uh, with $36 million. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, which is, you know, uh, I guess it's, it's not, it's not very expensive, but it's a three-year commitment. It's over a $30 million commitment. Um, I guess the, the, the main question is, do we know anything about pitchers who have who seem to have been fixed or greatly improved by a pitching coach and, and or staff and then gone on to another team? What happens? Yeah, I mean, so we don't know entirely. I mean, like so, like probably the best example of this would have been you know 20 years ago, Leo Mazzoni kind of had this reputation of being able to get guys in Atlanta, teach them how to just throw six inches off the plate. Uh, they seem to get a lot of calls, and uh, so their pitch away philosophy uh, worked out pretty well for them. Uh, but then Leo Mazzoni went to Baltimore and it, it didn't work so well and now Leo Mazzoni's out of baseball. Uh, and then probably 10 years ago it was Dave Duncan in St. Louis who, uh, basically taught everybody the two-seamer and he took guys like Kyle Loesch and Joel Pinheiro and just kind of like a, a long running list of guys who came in. He taught them to throw a sinker down in the zone. Uh, Yadier Molina stole a bunch of strikes for them. Uh, and they, you know, pitched to contact, got ground balls and turned into pretty good pitchers. And so, uh, that worked out pretty well. But then, you know, Dave Duncan had some health issues with his family and had to leave. And the Cardinals continued to do that even without him, suggesting that maybe it wasn't just Dave Duncan. Maybe like it was Yadier Molina or, kind of the whole organization, uh, or at least that he had taught people what to do and they could do it after he left. Um, and, you know, I think more recently with Pittsburgh, like what, maybe last year's version of the Pirates or uh, 2014's version of, of this kind of pitcher was Edinson Volquez, who the Pirates picked up on the cheap and taught him to throw strikes for the first time in his career, and he had a pretty good season, and then the Royals gave him a two-year contract. They didn't choose to re-sign him, and Edinson Volquez was pretty good in Kansas City. So, um I think there's a kind of a mixed bag of results where you can look at it and say, you know, sometimes these things stick, uh, and sometimes they don't. And you can't really assign credit or blame to the coaching staff versus the pitcher that easily. I mean, like, so I'd say, like, Colin McHugh is probably a good example, right, of, like, a guy who is basically nothing, who the Astros claimed on waivers because they liked the spin rate on his curveball. Uh, he goes to Houston and becomes a very good starting pitcher. Uh, is it that they fixed Colin McHugh and that if the Astros traded Colin McHugh, he would go back to being terrible? Or did they identify something in Colin McHugh that was going to improve regardless? Uh, which gets back kind of like a nature versus nurture thing. Is, is, is it, they're targeting players who are likely to get better uh, with a little bit of tweaking. 
uh, or are they um, improving kind of raw materials that wouldn't do well anywhere else? I, we don't we don't know. I mean, you know, I think it's a tough question to answer. I would say pitching especially is complicated, and there's enough examples of guys like Cliff Lee or Jake Arrieta or you know McHugh or there's a lot of guys out there, Doug Fister, who were basically nothing, and then they became very very good starting pitchers for uh, good runs of time. That I think it's dangerous to look at a guy who has high-level success for a couple months and just be like, well, that's a fluke. He can't keep that up because guys have material, drastic, mid-career changes as pitchers, and they do keep them up more often uh, than people give it credit for when they just say, oh, you're just looking at two months of data and you're overreacting. Uh, You don't want to overreact to just two months of data, but I think you should also be aware of the fact that uh, pitchers do make dramatic mid-career changes, and if you only look at kind of career numbers – you're going to miss guys like Arietta and Lee and, uh, you know, McHugh and, and these guys who take huge steps forward. So do, um, do you think that the, the part of the Blue Jays' interest, I say this partly tongue-in-cheek, but is to ask Jay, Jay Happ how he got better? Because he was, <laughs> they just had him on the team. Maybe, right. he's, maybe he's secretly been employed by the Blue Jays all along. Uh, he's paid under the table. And they say, all right, we're going to trade you to Seattle. Seattle's clearly not going to contend next year. We already know that. They're, they're going to trade you. We're going to, we're going to coerce them to trade you to Pittsburgh. We want you to learn what Ray Searage is talking about, what he's teaching people, and then come back and, and, and tell us. And we'll, we'll give you a three-year contract if you do that. I think it'd be easier to just hire Ray Searage. Yeah, well, there's a good Probably point. cheap, too. I bet you if they went to Pittsburgh and were like, here's 336 for Ray Searage, mm-hmm. uh, he would leave. I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, didn't they try and hire Dan Duquette for a long time unsuccessfully? Yeah, but they like Duquette was uh, the GM of the team and uh, is in division, uh, and Peter Angelos is difficult. Uh, I think if you offered a pitching coach $12 million a year, I am pretty confident he would take it. Do we know how much players, when they go to a new team, how much they share about the, their previous team's uh, coaching staff or philosophies? I mean, I'm sure they talk, uh, but I, I think it's like so individual for each pitcher, right? Like you can say like, oh, this guy taught me to do this specific thing, uh, but not everyone has Jay Happ's arm slot and release point and pitch types. And, uh, you know, just because it worked for Happ doesn't mean it's going to work for, you know, Marcus Stroman. But sometimes you do like, oh, this guy, you know, went and learned that great, like kind of uh, right on right split finger change up thing that Tampa Bay teaches every pitcher they have. Uh, and, you know, then they go elsewhere and they're like, hey, look at this pitch I have now. Uh, there are examples of that happening, but I think it's probably more kind of that learning a new pitch than just like a mechanical tweak or changing your pitch mix or something like that. Okay. Uh, now, uh, uh, last last matter we'll discuss, the signing of Jordan Zimmerman by the yeah. Detroit Tigers. Slightly more high profile than Jay Happen. Yeah, more high profile, but... <clears throat> But I I thought that there were more interesting questions to ask about um, Jay Happ. Yeah, yeah. Carson Stooley thinks Jay Happ is more interesting than Jordan Zimmerman. Well, who pitched better over the last two months of the season? Oh, that's Happ. Yeah. Yeah, that's Happ. I mean, but that's Happ versus almost every pitcher not named Arietta or Kershaw. Okay, so fine. So he yeah. was really good. So is, yeah. Do you no, I agree. I agree. Jay Happ is more interesting than than Jay Happ was three months ago. And as uh, August Fagerstrom revealed today, uh, using uh, the uh, this calculator that was devised by Sean Dolinar. Well, you, I mean, you and others, and Sean Dolinar. This amazing, uh, the contract estimates. Yeah. That thing's awesome. It is pretty great. What a, what a good tool. Yeah, I mean, it basically codifies the kinds of calculations we've been doing on the site for years, but instead of, like, uh, us having to just kind of make them up, it, it puts a systematic structure in place. Which yeah, I nice. love it. Love yeah. it. Anyways, uh, right. Uh, the, right. So this is one thing that's, that's, 
less exciting about the signing of Zimmerman by Detroit is uh, he was signed five years, 110 million. If we if we said uh, sort of generic market value, it would have been five years and 109 million. Yeah. So there's I not. Mean, it, it depends, depends on how you use the aging curve. I think to get there, August used the ages well drop down. So like the tool has different aging curves you can pick, and I believe August picked the one that said uh, is an optimistic aging curve, which. Given that Zimmerman's coming off the worst year of his career, or at least his worst year in some years, and as a Tommy John recoverer, I think giving him an optimistic aging curve is you know, optimistic. <laughs> the so what is notable about Zimmerman is not necessarily Zimmerman himself, but the fact that because Detroit have signed him, and yet probably have yet to. Um, to have on their roster the sort of requisite number of wins to consider themselves a real uh, postseason team heading into 2016, it, it it seems to indicate it seems to indicate first that they're that they're likely to um, be be uh, seeking more talent. But what we also know is that they're already pretty close to the payroll uh, that they recorded in 2015, which was uh, the highest payroll they'd ever recorded. Yeah, I mean, I think so. A couple of years ago, I probably would have stressed this point more strenuously. Uh, I think over the last couple of years, I'm, I'm either learning to back off of this contention or uh, the game is changing and making it less true or maybe a combination of both. But I think we are less able now to identify teams that cannot contend in the upcoming season than we think, right? So like I can say with a decent amount of confidence next year that the Phillies are not going to make the playoffs. Uh, and probably the Braves... And then after that, I don't know. I mean, I think like maybe 26 or 27 teams could like make a realistic argument that they only need a few things to go their way to make the world, make the playoffs. And like, uh, I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is it's just not worth it as much as it used to be to kind of throw, throw a season down the drain and say, Hey, look, you know, I only project as like a 77 win team, so I shouldn't try and get any better because uh, I might only be able to improve myself to like 82 or 83 wins, and that's still 10 wins shy of winning the division. When now the second wild card, can you can sneak in with like 87, 88, 89 wins, you can at least hang around. Uh, and you know it doesn't take that much, you know, kind of uh, sequencing luck or uh, you know the health uh, of injury avoidance, I guess, to you know have a mediocre team push yourself into the play playoffs, and that can have a huge financial re- returns, um, especially in the Tigers' position where they already have so much kind of of their value tied up in aging players like Miguel Cabrera, who are really good still, but aren't going to be really good in a couple of years. I don't know that rebuilding really makes sense for them. And so um, I think from the Tigers' position, they can look at the rest of the division and say, look, the, you know, the Royals might be losing uh, Alex Gordon and Ben Zobrist and Johnny Cueto. Uh, they traded, uh, you know, some parts of their farm system uh, in order to kind of get good these last couple of years, especially this year at the, at the trade deadline. Um, they could be vulnerable. I don't think we can look at the AL Central and be like, yeah, this is an unwinnable division. Uh, the Dodgers don't play in the AL Central spending $300 million. So from the Tigers' perspective, I agree that this can't be the last move they make, but I also wouldn't say, you know, they're not good enough in order to make a move like this worth it, especially because it's only a five-year deal. If this was like a seven- or eight-year deal where they really kind of – agreed to take on a bunch of dead money at the end in order to get a short-term gain, I'd say, you know, probably not worth it. But on a five-year deal, like, unless Zimmerman's elbow blows out, I think he's probably expect he's still an okay pitcher uh, who should be worth something uh, at the end of this deal and is worth more than $20 million a year uh, in 2016. So it makes them better in the short term, not a crazy long uh, cost down the road. And I think, you know, 
their division is winnable enough in their position that, you know, they can make a couple more small moves and, and at least put together uh, a plan for how they can contend in 2016, even if it's not the most likely outcome. So what is the – now, given the, the calculus uh, produced by the new uh, – by the, by the wildcard system now, yeah. what is the sort of lower end of the range do you think a team needs to realistically think it can hit? I think if you if you can see a path that doesn't take a lot of luck to get to 500, you're a contender or at least a pseudo contender. Because I think, look, we know, uh, you know, one, kind of one standard deviation in terms of projections. If we knew all the information about all the players just based on playing 162 game season and all the luck that goes with it, like one standard deviation is like six wins, right? So like, uh, you know, two standard deviations, that's like a within the normal bound of reason you'd expect that to happen basically every year. Someone's going to win 12 more games than projected uh, just based on, you know, staying healthier than expected and having, you know, winning a few close games and getting some good calls at the right times and getting some clutch hits. Uh, and all of a sudden an 81 win team is a 90 with three win team and going to the postseason. So I think if you're, in that 500 range, it now makes sense to go for it, or at least not punt. Like, you don't necessarily have to, like, mortgage your future and give up all your top prospects. Like, I don't think a, an 80-win team should do what the Padres did last year. Uh, but I think if you're in that range and you can sign guys to reasonably priced contracts like the Zimmerman deal and improve your team in the short term without really mortgaging your franchise, you should do it. All right. The uh, You have what you have done now. What you have done now, Dave Kerman, is to... Uh, what is it? What do you say? Fulfill your obligation. Hooray, hooray. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dave. You're welcome, Carson. All right. I will say this, and I will say thank you. I already said thank you. So that has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I am Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.